You are in the Ozarks, and it is After Dark. And this is the After Dark Dispatch on Ozarks After Dark Radio, ozarksafterdark.com slash ADD. It's October 7th. Happy Halloween! And tonight, did California police really seize enough car fentanyl to kill 50 million people? Thousands of totally legitimate <coughs> scientific <coughs> studies ruined by some rando on TikTok. The shills at Forbes act like biosynthetic psilocybin is a new thing. And some positive LSD stories for once. Now here's Tom with the weather. Late October of 2002, the musical theatre production Nordost debuts in Moscow. The performance drew crowds of theatre-goers to the city's Dubrovka Theatre. On Wednesday evening, the venue was packed with people enjoying the critically acclaimed show until dozens of masked gunmen stormed the building. Within minutes, hundreds of people were taken hostage, including many children and elderly people. They'd spend the next three days trapped in a concert hall, deprived of food, water or medicine. After hours of negotiations, the attackers agreed to release 41 people. They also allowed some journalists inside and stated their demand, and then to the Russian military campaign against the Islamist insurgents in Chechnya. The Kremlin offered to let the group leave Russia if they released the hostages, but it soon became clear the militants had no plans of making it out alive. On Saturday, two hostages were shot while trying to flee. Hours later, authorities decided to launch a rescue operation. At five o'clock in the morning, a chemical agent was pumped into the building's ventilation system to knock out the jihadists and prevent them from detonating the explosives. standoff that followed nearly 50 terrorists were killed. The first hostages were then carried out of the building and rushed to hospital. The siege was over, but 130 lives were lost. Well, that was pretty dark. What the fuck does that have to do with anything? Well, I'll tell you. After a compliment and earthiogen with That's Us Kaz, 
the compliment rework under Creative Commons license. Watch out out there. There's chemical weapons about.
Welcome back. Uh, so who gives a fuck about Chechen rebels in 2002 other than the guy that's got to figure out who to divvy up all the virgins to or whatever? Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe anybody who's doing street drugs these days. Um, and it turns out I'm kind of late to the party on this. Uh, I recorded this the other night, but I was so goddamn drunk when I did it that I had to stop near the end and I it wasn't even worth listening to it to see if it was worth listening to don't even care so why the fuck did I say that see I got equally stoned tonight uh to the drunk of the other night the only difference is I don't feel like I'm going to fucking die um so who gives a fuck about the Chechen rebels oh yeah 
people who do street drugs these days. And like I said, I'm a little late to the party. Uh, in between the getting drunk and fil- and uh, recording most of this and the uh, now and doing it again, because why not? Uh, I did a little Googling just to see, did, did nobody notice this? Well, it turns out this cropped up a few years ago. Well, over the last several years, a few times in a few places. That's not really surprising. I was actually surprised that it took so long to pop up anyway. I don't really pay that much attention to opiates, opioids, all that shit. I don't really care that much. But it looks like it's butting up a little too close to the rest of the more sane drug user universe. So uh, we'll get to that in a second. But first, we're going to talk about this Chechen thing. This is so much fun. I didn't, I remember, I want to say I remember when this happened. There was a lot of other stuff going on at the time, too, um, it being 2002 and all. Um, And, ah, where is that fucking window? Uh, There it is. Uh, I want to say I remember this happening, but it really wasn't on my radar at all. It was, you know, a thing happened overseas, crazy terrorist shit, whatever. Uh, But this is from a scientific paper, uh... From the Detection Department, Defense Science and Technology Laboratory, something that I marked over by accident, Salisbury, Wiltshire, SP40JQ, UK. Um, then this was funded uh, by the Russian Defense Department, whatever the fuck they call that. Uh, the UK Ministry of Defense is mentioned in the acknowledgments for funding the study. Um, And it appeared in the Journal of Analytical Toxicology in 2012. And it is called Analysis of Clothing and Urine from Moscow Theater Siege Casualties Reveals Carfentanil and Remifentanil Use. We will get to why this is relevant to anyone today in a moment. You can probably see where this is going, but bear with me. Bear, get it? (laughs) Russia, get it? That was unintentional, but I decided to point it out because I'm a fucking retard. Introduction. On October 23rd, 2002, Chechen terrorists seized the... That? Fuck the... Don't scroll too fast. The Mijinkov Street Theater in Moscow during a sellout performance of the musical Nordost taking over 800 hostages and demanding immediate and unconditional withdrawal of Russian troops from Chechnya. The state siege, rather, ended in the early morning of October 26th after a special forces unit belonging to the Russian Federal Security Service, or FSB, pumped a chemical aerosol into the building and stormed it. At least 33 terrorists and 129 hostages died during or shortly after the raid. The terrorists were shot dead after falling unconscious to the effects of the aerosol. Explosives strapped to them were removed and a bomb in the auditorium was deactivated. Two hostages were shot by the terrorists, while 125 died through a combination of the aerosol and inadequate medical treatment following the rescue. Medical treatment of the casualties was complicated because the Russian government did not disclose the composition of the aerosol. The head of the Moscow Public Health Department announced that all but one of the hostages killed in the raid had died of the effects of the gas... which was surmised to uh, comprise an anesthetic or chemical warfare agent. 
Foreign embassies in Moscow issued official requests for more information on the aerosol to aid treatment, but were, but were ignored. Armed guards were posted at Moscow hospitals, and doctors were ordered not to release any of the casualties. Refusing to disclose the content of the aerosol used, the Russian government informed the United States Embassy on October 28 about some of the effects. Based on this information and examination of some of the casualties, doctors concluded that the aerosol had contained a morphine derivative. On October 30th, Russia responded to increasing domestic and international pressure with a statement by its health minister, Yuri Shev, uh, Shev, <laughs> Shevchenko, Yuri Shevchenko, uh, who identified the aerosol as that of a fentanyl derivative, although the precise composition was not disclosed. Shevchenko stated that fentanyl was an anesthetic that fell into the category of non-lethal medical preparations and that the troops had not used any substances prohibited by the Chemical Weapons Convention. After the siege, various hypotheses were proposed to account for the Russian explanation that an aerosolized form of fentanyl had been used, a mixture of fentanyl and the anesthetic gas halothane, or fentanyl alone, for example, but these ideas were soon discredited based on the insufficient potency of these chemicals. Yeah, that's right. Fentanyl is not nearly potent enough to do this. A recent European Court of Human Rights report of a legal case against Russia lodged by 64 Russians that survived or lost relatives in the siege provides an authoritative account of events. And my screen just went dark. That's great. Therein, the Russian government revealed that the aerosol was a, quote, mixture based on derivatives of fentanyl, end quote, and, quote, a composite chemical compound of general narcotic action. Yeah, no shit suggesting more than one component. However, the composition was not disclosed to the court. This case report provides evidence from the analysis of clothing for, from two British, British survivors and urine from a third survivor with a Russian name that the aerosol comprised a mixture of two fentanyls, carfentanil, and remifentanil. Case history. Clothing and blood samples from British survivors held in the theater throughout the siege were uh, received at the Defense Science and Technology Laboratory, Portion down, port, portion down on the afternoon of October 28, 2002 for analysis. A jumper and a leather jacket from Casualty... I'm not going to do that. Casualty 1, male. A shirt from Casualty 2, female. And two blood samples from each casualty were provided. The blood samples had been taken approximately 19 hours, Casualty 1, and 12 hours, Casualty 2, after the chemical aerosol had been released into the theater. The casualties had been near an exit door, which appears to have been a major factor in their survival. They were among the first casualties evacuated from the theater after it was assaulted. Both casualties were interviewed separately by British police on November 12th and 13th, 2002. The following information is taken from these interviews. During the morning of October 26th, the hostage takers pointed to a white aerosol that appeared to be emerging silently from the balcony wall. The aerosol, dense, white, and cloudy, spread evenly and descended slowly. Casualty 1 claimed it had an indescribable smell. Casualty 2 remembered it as odorless, People were not coughing or sputtering, even on the balcony. Both casualties knelt on the floor and covered their faces with their clothing. From first spotting the aerosol to being overcome by it took 10 to 30 seconds for casualty 1 and at least 30 seconds for casualty 2. Neither casualty saw the assault team enter the theater. Upon awakening in the hospital, casualty 1 recalled vomiting and seeing blood, which concerned him, but strangely, he felt no pain in his stomach. Nurses told him not to sleep, but eventually he dozed off. Two bottles of fluid were administered by intravenous drip. He was told they contained sugar. He received at least two injections. One was supposed to make him go to the toilet. He did not know what the others were for. He was given pajamas, which they spell with a Y for some reason, pie, pie pajamas. He was given pajamas to wear because his clothes were wet. 
He noticed them drawing on a radiator and put them on to go home. Sounds like me at Burning Man. Anyway, Casualty 2 was led down the steps and placed in a vehicle. On the way to the hospital, she drifted in and out of consciousness, and in the hospital, a drip was inserted into her arm. She was surprised to feel no pain. <sighs> Doctors appeared more... I just I started hearing Oasis. It's fine. Doctors appeared worried by the blood in her hair. Uh, she thought it must have been blood from a terrorist. Later, she found blood on her clothes and realized she had probably been dragged from the theater. A single urine specimen was received from a 56-year-old man, Casualty 3, who had survived the siege. The specimen was provided on October 31st, 2002. Woo! Five days after the man had inhaled the chemical aerosol and arrived at Distal Portion Down one late Distal Portion Down one day later. According to the accompanying medical notes, the man had been exposed to the aerosol for maybe one hour and had fallen unconscious for at least three, two to three hours. After being rescued, he had been moved to a hospital, to hospital in Moscow, where he had received a mucolytic, corticosteroids, frusamide, a diuretic, amicacin, and aflux, aflucasin, both antibiotics. The ipratropium or ipratropium, uh, and scrolling fucking sucks. Hello, where did it go? An anticholinergic drug and propanolol, a beta blocker. He was later discharged and had not received any medication the day before he donated the urine sample. Thank God, it sounds like he ate a truckload. Anyway, or was injected with a truckload. That's fine. Other eyewitness accounts suggest that the Russian special forces pumped the chemical aerosol through the ventilation system at approximately 5 a.m. Other hostages inside the theater also saw and smelt the aerosol. Wait, also smelt? They, okay, well, I guess the first person indescribable and then the second person no odor. So I wouldn't say they smell. Anyway, uh, he who smelt it and better look at them. Uh, uh, were rapidly overwhelmed by it and after 30 to 60 minutes were evacuated to hospitals in Moscow. Unconscious, they had inhibited tendon, pupil, and corneal reflexes, respiratory depression, and cyanosis. The Russian government commented that hospital care for those most intoxicated involved oxygen administration, mechanical ventilation, and injection of naloxone, a standard antidote for treating opioid overdose. Less affected individuals were torpid, disoriented, disorientated and vomiting and had pinpoint pupils, bradycardia, hypertension, and received symptomatic treatment. All right, so that's all the stuff that I circled with bright uh, green stuff on the top. Oh, let's go down to the bottom. Carfentanil is more potent than fentanyl. Its sole approved use is by veterinarians to incapacitate wildlife for examination and procedures. It is not approved for use in humans. The first document, okay, and by wildlife they mean uh, uh, the rhinoceros and the elephant and uh, and all the other weird horned things that like clack their heads together and shit and are creepy and as big as a car. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that, that, that this is used to sedate. So... Uh, the first documented human exposure to carfentanil in the open literature became available only recently. Uh, a 47-year-old male splashed his eyes and mouth accidentally with the contents of a tranquilizer dart containing 1.5 milligrams carfentanil citrate. He washed his face immediately with water but became drowsy two minutes later. His colleagues, recognizing that he had been poisoned, administered 100 milligrams of the reversal agent naltrexone, whose antagonistic potency is approximately twice that of naloxone, which is a trade name Narcan's, where they used to bring um, people out of opiate overdoses. 
this presumably saved his life. The man complained an hour later while in the hospital of a mild and transient chest discomfort, but this uh, disappeared and he was discharged in a stable condition a day later. This account suggests that carfentanil exposures may cause severe intoxication or fatality in the absence of prompt and appropriate medical treatment. The same conclusion can be drawn from remifentanil. Both carfentanil and remifentanil have narrow safety margins, uh, meaning that potentially fatal... S uh, did I miss something? I feel like I missed where they actually showed that. Yeah, I totally skipped past some shit. God damn it. Uh... Oh, no, no, no. Okay, we read where they treated the people. But then, okay, yeah, I skipped over all the real specific. And again, all this stuff is going to be in the show notes. Uh, even the. Uh less than legal copy that I'm reading from right now. Uh, thank you, Sci-Hub. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That girl is my favorite commie for sure. Um, she's doing God's work as far as I'm concerned. I don't give a shit if she thinks she's a commie. Uh, let's see. Um, anyway, so that guy got fucked up off of it. Um, uh, I skipped all the really technical stuff because it's not really something that translates very well. Anyway, if you can't see the graphs and even then it's just going to sound like a bunch of jargon. Um, but it, it's there if you want to see it. Um, so the 47 year old guy, anyway, he blah, blah, blah. So carfentanil may have been mixed with a less potent, shorter acting remifentanil in an attempt to lessen the number of fatalities that may have otherwise uh, resulted from exposure to carfentanil alone. If the remifentanil was uh, used to dilute carfentanil, the carfentanil, then pre uh, presumably it was disseminated in higher concentration. This was not reflected by the analysis results, possibly due to its lower stability. Uh, an advantage of remifentanil for surgical uses, the depth of narcosis can be titrated so that the dose rate approximates the metabolism rate so they can just keep feeding this stuff into you as it's draining out of you when i went to look into this and i'll also have links to all this stuff because this is kind of i've never really had much of an interest in these things but when i started getting looking at this for this purpose it it, it got my attention because this stuff is i mean if it'll put down an elephant that's pretty fucking cool like i can't imagine having any desire to want to get anywhere near it um and that's what we'll get around to because holy shit, uh, this doesn't need to come in contact with anything that's anywhere near anybody <laughs> like that doesn't know what the fuck they're doing with it uh, because this stuff is really fucking potent and has legit been used as a chemical weapon by the Russians, at least by these people. Um Scientific papers published by Russian military officers indicate an interest in fentanyls extending back 12 years. Opioid receptor studies, fentanyl analysis, and syntheses of fentanyl uh, precursors. That Russian military research on fentanyls occurred before 1994 is evident from a passage in a book by General Antonov, a former director of the Military Chemical Institute in Shikhani. I have no idea how to actually say that. Shikhani. Uh... <laughs> which states that, quote, the action of analgesics is a knockout blow. Personnel subject to an attack of forces only a few minutes after the beginning of a chemical attack will lose their capacity to, capacity to stand, not to mention move about. In severe cases, people will enter an unconscious state, and carfentanil is one of the most active substances of the entire group of the study derivatives of fentanyl. It manifests, it manifests its activity for different pathways of entry into the organism, including inhalation of vapors or aerosol. To the author's knowledge, 
This is the only information on carfentanil aerosolization in the public domain. One further use of an incapacitant has been reported since the theater siege. On October 13, 2005, armed Chechen separatists attacked the Russian town of Nalchik. Uh, in response, Russian special forces employed a quote-unquote narcotic agent <laughs> against the separatists uh, who were holding two women hostage in a shop. Uh, no information about the narcotic agent has emerged, although the affected hostages were rescued and revived successfully by an unidentified antidote. Conclusions. Uh, uh, we'll make the conclusion short. Essentially, yeah, this shit is what they use. Carfentanil and Remifentanil. And when I went in uh, to look into Carfentanil versus Remifentanil, because I'd also never heard of Remifentanil. Now, Carfentanil popped up on my radar years and years ago, and I've been really surprised not to see it yet because people are fucking insane. Um, and like I said before, like I mentioned before, it actually has popped up in multi-pound quantities over the years a few times in various places so i missed it because whatever you can't you, you can't catch them all and honestly it never really concerned me that much because it didn't seem to be coming uh into contact with anything outside of the junkie community but uh we're gonna listen to another track and then we'll talk about uh uh briefly about how it uh fucking popped up in california the other day <laughs> Uh-oh. And it was with a Coke dealer, so nobody's safe from this fucking goddamn bullshit. Gotta be fucking kidding me. Nobody wants your fucking chemical weapons. Not all bunch of crazy Amazon's probably the one.
Welcome back. That was Stereo Dots with Therapy. Uh, and if you would like to call in with uh, complaints or, well, I'm not going to give you the complaint line. It's secret. Um, you'll have to listen to another episode to find out what that line is. But if you would like to uh, call for any other reason, uh, <clears throat> the number is 901-308-7270. And uh, so what about all this car fentanyl stuff? Well, uh, this article came from USA Today, you know, that paper that you see in the in the hotel and always thought was really lame because it is. Uh, the headline is, and this came out September 26th, uh, synthetic opioids strong enough to kill more than 50 million people seized in California, authorities say. Now, usually when I read one of these stories, uh, these so-called authorities are completely pulling numbers way, way from like the deepest part of the inside of their asses. Uh, but this time I got, I, you know, usually I'm not even that curious. Like it's usually it's when they're trying to put, uh, you know, just blow something out of proportion or make the street value of something that they've, uh, you know, a haul that they brought in, uh, look a, a lot higher than it is. Um, but uh, this time, uh, well, I did a little digging, so uh, we'll read the rest of the article. Two Southern California residents were charged in a massive drug bust that resulted in authorities seizing more than 46 pounds of an extremely lethal synthetic opioid. Uh, Andre, uh, Andre, Andres Jesus Morales, 30, and Christine Ponce, 27, were charged with four felony counts, each a possession of a controlled substance for sale, the Riverside District Attorney's Office announced on Thursday. The two arrests came after the Riverside Police Department raided a home in the city of Paris, California, about 70 miles southeast of L.A. on Oct uh, August 17th. At the home, officers seized 46.2 pounds of carfentanil, 8.8 pounds of cocaine, and 2.2 pounds of heroin. I think it's pretty interesting that they have way more creepy-ass carfentanil than they do heroin. Maybe they just flip the heroin faster and keep that on hand to cut it. I don't know. I, I, I struggle to see exactly what's going on here. Um... But what creeps me the fuck out is that those people are handling cocaine probably with the same goddamn set of hands and brains and everything else that they in the same spot that they are handling that car fentanyl shit. And and anybody who does cocaine or comes anywhere near cocaine might want to figure out how to test their shit for this stuff now because holy fuck. Um they go on to say, carfentanil is a synthetic opioid that is typically used as a tranquilizing agent uh, for elephants and other large mammals. When administered to humans, the drug is 10,000 times more potent than morphine and 100 times more potent than fentanyl, according to the DEA. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, when I went to look all that up, that that's that's the uh, that seems to be the consensus everywhere. Let's see. Uh, well, I'm not going to pick it back up from uh, from PubChem. I'm not trying to beat this beat this horse completely to death. That's not how it goes. Anyway, um, uh, and then they go on to say, let's see. Um, this says the DEA uh, also said that two milligrams of fentanyl is enough to kill someone. So, I mean, if you go from you know you go, it's hundred times more potent. And then if you not that you can extrapolate in this way necessarily, but just assuming that you just using that as some kind of baseline. Uh, if it's a hundred times more potent and two milligrams can kill you just by their numbers right there, um, then it, it's, it's an awful tiny amount that can, that can kill you.
like 20 mics, like a, a, a fifth of a standard hit of acid. So uh, that, okay, so anyway, um, they go on to say, if mixed in with other drugs, the 21 kilos of carfentanil C's could have been enough to potentially kill more than 50 million people. Um, and, uh, and then it goes on to say a few other things. Um, anyway, uh, so the, I went and did some math on this. Um, and I'm at attempting to be as, uh, as conservative as possible with it. Uh, I got a conversion factor of 2.2046 kilograms per pound at 46 point, and we're also going to ignore significant figures because that that because ignoring them is going to skew it, this in the direction of being more conservative and it's n not even worth it again that I'd anyway so 46.2 pounds of carfentanil divided by 2.2046 uh, is going to be 20.9561 blah 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 kilograms of carfentanil uh, which is 20 20 trillion, uh, excuse me, 20 billion, 956 million and some odd micrograms. Um, the LD 50 or the lethal dose or the dose that would kill 50 would kill half of a population that it's given to. Uh, if you, if you go with 20 micrograms as that dose, which might be on the uh, giving it up more potency than than its deserved side, but there's there's not really any way of knowing. There's not an established LD50 in humans, um, according to the government. Um, so, if you assume that the LD50 is 20 micrograms, then actually 20 micrograms uh, is going to give you. Let's see. I got too many numbers up here. <laughs> uh, you're talking about a, a a billion, a billion and change, like a, a billion forty seven thousand eight hundred uh, nine thousand one hundred twenty six doses that you're going to get out of that forty six point two pounds. Um, so, given that the LD fifty at that at that dose, uh, you would just take that in half. Uh, and you would get 523.9 million um, that you could potentially kill at an, with an LD50 of 20 micrograms. So instead of about 50 million, it actually breaks down to, at 20 micrograms, it actually breaks down to about, uh, five, about half a billion, a little over half a billion. Uh, that... <laughs> I found that to be pretty impressive. If you uh, if you go to 100 mics instead, um, then it's more like it's more like 100 million. So it's interesting to me. The cops, for once, uh, actually were conservative, and that's that's fucking terrifying. This is uh, Yeshua Em with different ways on Ozarks After Dark Radio on the After Dark Dispatch. OzarksAfterDark.com slash ADD 
Hashtag Ozarks After Dark on Zero No IRC.
That was Joshua Yashua E.M. with Different Ways. Under a Creative Commons license. Uh, yeah, so I thought it'd be fun to start out with a spooky story. And what is spookier than... I mean, you can't win for losing, really. It's like you try to do something highbrow and go to the theater. And then your government gasses the shit out of you just because some crazy Muslims came and wanted to blow stuff up and they thought it was better to gas them and kill everybody instead of have them get the pleasure of killing every, whatever they, but they did their thing. And so you decide, you know, maybe that's not for me. The theater seems like it's full of degenerates who are all getting high. So you decide to get some Coke and go to a club like a normal person. And then your dickhead Coke dealer has been fiddling with goddamn car fentanyl while they broke down the Coke. You just cannot fucking win with these people in prohibition and all that shit. So, uh, according to The Verge, a teenager on TikTok disrupted thousands of <coughs> scientific studies with a single video. Researchers were caught sur by surprise after a short video sent a flood of new users to a survey platform. Thousands of scientific studies had to toss out weeks of data because of a 56-second TikTok video by a teenager. They might have, must have just might have just said might as well have just said by a little girl, by a teenager. On the July 23rd video is short and simple. Okay, I'll make it quick. The girl goes, "Oh my god, I got a cool side hustle. You go to this site and you take surveys. It's great, and they pay you," which was true apparently. Uh, and so. Uh, let's see, uh, that, uh, platform was called prolific, uh, prolific, a tool for scientists conducting behavioral research had no free screening tools in place. Now I would think this was an ad if it got started pointing towards something anywhere in this article after that shit. Oh, they had no free screening tools in place. I just expect them to pre present some other place that does have free screening tools or the fuck that's supposed to mean. Anyway. Free, they had no free screening tools in place to make sure that it delivered a representative population sample to each study. Suddenly, scientists used to getting a wide mix of subjects for their prolific studies saw their surveys flooded with responses from young women around Frank's age. Uh, for researchers who rely on representative samples of the U.S. population, that demographic shift was a major problem with no obvious cause and no immediately clear way to fix <laughs> doing science on the internet. <laughs> this is so fucking ridiculous. None of this should have ever been considered science at all. And as far as I'm concerned by anybody who is, has any correct concept of what science means, they never, it never has been. Uh, it's ridiculous. I mean, and I've taken some of these surveys. I like the spirit of some of them. You know, I've seen them on Blue Light. I've seen them on some websites, and they're they're you know, uh, pro stuff. I'm pro, and so I'm like, yeah, I'll tell you about my DMT making me all holy experience shit. But you know, come on, you you know you're marketing it to a very specific demographic, and you're doing it on the internet, which means that. Not only are you getting people that match that demographic, you're getting, and this is for a non-paid study, and you know, you're getting trolls, you're getting just people who want to fuck with shit, you're getting people who had 
15 experiences and they want to, for some reason, don't understand that registering every single one of them with this is uh, fucks with what this whole thing is about. Like you just, you don't even have any idea who you're dealing with or if they're even people. Um, but these, uh, you know, obviously these girls, there obviously there were no controls on this because these girls could just flood in and, and do whatever and still get paid, I guess, apparently. Um, at Mechanical Turk at least makes you go and and change your lie up in your, you know, you can change your locale or whatever. If they're targeting your this locale or that locale, you, you can definitely go in and fiddle with that info. I don't know how often you can fiddle with it, but I know you can fiddle with it. <coughs> Excuse me. There are all kinds of ways to fake this shit, but it doesn't even look like these girls had to. So anyway... They flooded this site, and now you've got all this this useless data where they acted where they acted like they thought that their data was worth a fuck before. Anyway, we're not going to go into uh, it in any more detail. The links will be in the show notes. Uh, but uh, and a thing I left out in the uh, introduction here: uh, monarch butterflies are being wiped out. These combat veterans are trying to save them. Uh, this is a group called Guardian Grange. And what do you know? Let's see. When Mark Metz... I have trouble with this guy's name. Metzel de la Flor. Mark Metzel de la Flor left the military more than a decade ago. He spent years searching for something that filled him with the same sense of purpose as being a Navy SEAL. After serving a couple tours in Iraq, including as an elite sniper, he returned home and took up odd jobs, quote, just wandering and doing random stuff and making some money to pay the rent, he said. Then on a whim, he said he tried magic mushrooms for the first time with a friend and that the psychedelic awakened in him a new resolve. Quote, I just uh, reconnected to nature and my past where I was like a kid in the woods. He said, we'll use he, fucking name is fucked up. And I realized there's so much healing in being outside in nature, getting your hands in the dirt and doing good work. Last year, the 37-year-old turned that realization into a nonprofit organization called Guardian Grange, which aims to use nature to help veterans cope with trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, and other issues that come with transitioning back to civilian life. Uh, when, you're, when you've been in a combat role like myself, you get out and there's nothing that correlates, he said. You have these abilities, but there's no stepping stone to something else. And that can lead to all kinds of issues with drinking, self-medicating, suicides, and all that kind of stuff. The idea behind Guardian Grange is not only to provide a safety net for veterans, but to also teach them something about conservation, sustainability, and regenerative agriculture while leveraging skills honed over years in the military. The organization currently has five core members and about ten others and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they want to con- uh, construct a preserve for Western monarch, monarch butterflies, uh, pollinator species that has been pushed to the brink of extinction in re- recent years due to stuff. We'll just call it stuff. They've got a link to one thing and I bet you can guess what it is. No links to the other two things, which are probably a bigger deal, but a link to the one thing. And, uh, we're not trying to push that horse shit or any other horse shit. I just thought it was cool. Hmm. Look, you take a sniper, you give him mushrooms and now they want to save the butterflies. That's pretty fucking cool right there. Uh, that's really cool. We're going to listen to another song, and then we're going to hear some positive LSD stories. This is Umber Vember and Under the Roots with Synthorial something that is. We'll talk about it later. Synthorial Alchemy. I think it's Alchemy.
I'm not going to spend but a second on this. But I feel like Forbes, uh, have they been bought by somebody or something? Not like they were a, just a great rag before, but every single article that I read there now is just seems like they're shilling for one company or another. I, I know they're a business magazine and that they're it's all about I don't know it's just it's a little different than it seems like it used to be anyway this article is called from sugar to psychedelics the european companies testing biosynthetic psilocybin in humans and we're not going to really go into it too much uh they're you know they they're doing this buzzwordy thing oh biosynthesis oh it's great and blah 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 and as though the fucking mushrooms haven't been at the whole time uh, that was as though the mushrooms hadn't been doing that the whole fucking time. I was trying to kill a fucking fly. Piece of shit fucking fly. Land on my fucking strips, bitch. Anyway, uh, you know, they're coming up with all kinds of great reasons why their shit is awesome and greener and blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah, whatever. You're moneyed people trying to grab hold of this instead of just let people, just let people have it. But... Anyway, I'm not bitching about stuff like that tonight. I just wanted to mention it. Um, I get tired of running into charlatans when I'm really looking for cool shit uh, and just not being able to help myself. Um, but not saying that that's what these people are. Uh, I love the idea of growing the shit with a strain of yeast. It's not actually a very new idea. It's kind of... I'm sure there's somebody who's already out there doing it at scale, but they're doing it very fucking quietly as they are wise to do. Uh, what's next? Oh, yeah. A bit of an interlude here. Totally copyright friendly, I'm sure. Same LSD story every time, and we've all heard it. Young man on acid thought he could fly, jumped out of a building. What a tragedy. What a dick. <laughs> he thought he could fly. Why didn't he take off the ground and check it out first? You don't see ducks lined up to catch elevators to fly south. He's an idiot. He's dead. Good. I mean, there's one less moron in the world. Wow, what a fucking tragedy, huh? I guess I'm one car linked up in traffic tomorrow. <clears throat> How about a positive LSD story? That would be newsworthy, don't you think? Anybody think that just once to hear a positive LSD story? Today, a young man on acid realized that all matter is merely energy condensed to a slow vibration, that we are all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively there is no such thing as death. Life is only a dream, and we are the imagination of ourselves. Here's Tom with the weather. <laughs> yes. Uh, so this is called, oh, I hate it when people do that. Anyway, it's fine. This is called LSD overdoses, three case reports. <clears throat> uh, and it's
It's by a couple of people. Well, one of them is the executive director for Maps Canada, um, and then an adjunct professor at University of British Columbia School of Population and Public Health. Uh, and wait, let's see. Oh yes, that's the same guy. And then uh, the uh, other, that's Mark Hayden, and then Brigitta Woods or. Birgitta, I don't have any idea how to pronounce that, Woods, uh, an adult psychiatrist, Vancouver, Coastal Health, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And the abstract reads, objective, in academic settings around the world, there is a resurgence of interest in using psychedelic substances for the treatment of addictions, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, and other diagnoses. This case series describes the medical consequences of accidental overdoses in three individuals. Method. Case series information were gathered from interviews, health records, case notes, and collateral reports. Results, the first case report documents significant improvements in mood symptoms, including reductions in mania with psychotic features following an accidental lysergic acid diethylamide overdose, changes that have been sustained for almost 20 years. The second case documents how an accidental overdose of LSD early in the first trimester of pregnancy did not negatively affect the course of the pregnancy or have any obvious... teratogenic or other negative developmental effects on the child. The third report indicates that intranasal ingestion of 550 times the normal recreational dosage of LSD was not fatal and had positive effects on pain levels and subsequent morphine withdrawal. Conclusions. There appear to be unpredictable positive sequelae that ranged from improvements in mental illness symptoms to reduction in physical pain and morphine withdrawal symptoms. Also, an LSD overdose while in early pregnancy did not appear to cause harm to the fetus. Um, It says, in academic settings around the world, there is a resurgence of interest in using psychedelic substances for the treatment. Uh, Did we already hear that? We did hear that already. I read it from the wrong spot. Anyway, uh, case report one, LSD overdose and the consequences for bipolar disorder. The first case report examines an incident in which a 15-year-old female, AV, accidentally ingested more than 1,000 micrograms of LSD or 10 times the normal recreational dosage of 100 micrograms and subsequently experienced a significant reduction of symptoms in a previously diagnosed bipolar disorder. The information used to prepare this case report was summarized from interviews with AV, observers of the incident, AV's father, and the supplier of the LSD, as well as a review of documents from two hospital admissions, ambulance and emergency department records, and the mental health team case notes. AV's first contact with the mental health system was in March 1997 at age 12 after she was referred to a community mental health youth team for hallucinations and behavioral problems at school. She reported having heard intermittent voices in her head for many years and a depressed mood in the context of a number of uh, psychosocial stressors. An electroencephalogram, or EEG, conducted in March 1997 was normal with no evidence of a seizure disorder. Her initial diagnosis was unspecified psychotic disorder with psychotic depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophreniform disorder as possible diagnoses. She was started on an antidepressant medication, uh, medication, sertraline, in May 1998 when she reported worsening depressive symptoms without evidence of psychosis. Her symptoms improved and stabilized until the fall of 1999 when her depression worsened. A light box... Uh, was introduced in November 1999 for the treatment of a seasonal winter depression 
<clears throat> and shortly thereafter, she started to show signs of hypomania, decreased need for sleep, elevated mood, increased chattiness, increased productivity, and obsessive cleaning. The light box treatment was discontinued and the sertraline was reduced. Over the Christmas holidays, she admitted to using ecstasy, pre uh, presumably 3,4-methylene-dioxymethamphetamine, twice, the last time being on New Year's Eve 1999. Her hypomanic symptoms continued, and she was assessed by her psychiatrist on January 19, 2000. A urine drug screen was done that day, which was positive only for cannabis. She was diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder and instructed to discontinue the sertraline. She refused a mood stabilizer at this time. She was hospitalized voluntarily on February 17, 2000 to recover uh, in a low-stimulation environment and was just discharged after three days prematurely. Although AV was using cannabis, she had not used any stimulants since New Year's Eve. Lithium, 150 milligrams, two times a day, was started on an outpatient basis on March 2, when she, which she agreed to take as this was a, quote, natural salt, end quote. She stopped taking it by the end of March as she reported feeling like myself again. Her symptoms of hypomania, however, only intensified. Her second hospitalization on April 19th, 2000, notably Bicycle Day, uh, was precipitated by an incident where she bit her mother. She was committed under the Provincial Mental Health Act because of safety concerns. At this point, she was not sleeping, and she had grandiose delusions, including that she could purchase a town in Mexico and become the mayor, that she was enlightened, and that she could speak all languages. Hospital notes documented that she was grandiose, paranoid, irritable, and disorganized. The lithium was restarted. After a 20-day admission, she was discharged on lithium 300 milligrams two times a day and olanzapine 5 to 7.5 milligrams at bedtime. Her diagnosis was changed to bipolar 1 disorder and she had a full-blown manic episode with psychotic features. AV reported in retrospect that she did not feel well in between hospital admissions nor for several months afterward and that she did not use much cannabis in those intervening months. Her drug use history. AV's first cannabis use was at age 11 with no effect. She used again at age 12 and began using regularly, escalating through ages 13 to 14, where she was using it daily, 1998 through 1999. She reported infrequent use of psilocybin mushrooms in 1998 and LSD on one prior occasion, Remembrance Day, November 11th, 1999. She used ecstasy, likely MDMA, twice her initial uh, twice her initial with her initial use in September 1999. It is noteworthy that her symptoms of hypomania emerged shortly after initiation of light box treatment, which was before her first use of ecstasy. Your analysis on January 14, 2000 was positive only for cannabis. AV reported that she never used cocaine, methamphetamine, or opiates. Mental health and family history. Mental health concerns existed in her family prior... Uh, in her family of origin with bipolar diagnoses and two paternal relatives and alcoholism and trauma in her maternal lineage. Psychosocial issues. AV's home life was turbulent with uh, parental separation and incarcerated father, uh, 1996, when she was age 12, subsequent ostracization by peers, and death of her grandmother in 1998 when she was age 14, and school changes. AV was unable to function in the normal school system because of disruptive and defiant behavior and was moved to an alternative school at age 13 in 1997. LSD overdose incident, June 20th, 2000. The LSD overdose incident occurred during a summer solstice party, June 20th, 2000, at age 15, where the supplier of the liquid LSD made a decimal place error when preparing individual doses diluted in glasses of water. Specifically, what were intended to be 100 microgram doses, a normal recreational dose, was were actually 1,000 micrograms per glass. So a milligram, milligram per. 
Um, AV drank one glass and subsequently drank the leftover drops from two other glasses. Her total dosage was therefore in the range of 1,100 to 1,200 micrograms, uh, which was ingested at 10 p.m. on a relatively empty stomach. Although no lethal overdoses of LSD have been documented, it is estimated that the lethal dose in a human is 14,000 micrograms. Uh, observers, observers subsequently reported erratic behavior for the next six and a half hours, followed by what they believed to be a seizure as she was lying in a fetal position with her arms and fists clenched tightly. An ambulance was called at 4.30 a.m., and by the time the paramedics arrived 10 minutes later, she was alert and oriented. She was transported to a local hospital where she was diagnosed with a seizure as this was what the witness reported. This conclusion is questionable as subsequent interviews with AV and observers revealed no loss of bladder or bowel control, no body of her tongue, no clonic movements in any limbs, and only a brief period of confusion after the clenching episode. It was unclear whether she had a loss of consciousness or whether she was intensely preoccupied with her experience at the time. Although extremely uncommon, grand mal seizures after LSD ingestion have been reported in the historical literature. AV's father reported uh, that when, she, when he entered the hospital room the next morning, AV stated, quote, it's over, end quote. He believed she was referring to the LSD overdose incident, but she clarified that she meant her bipolar illness was cured. Mental health team case notes. The case notes from AV's mental health team psychiatrist and therapist subsequent to the overdose incident reported a significant change in her mental illness symptoms. June 28, 2000, a second EEG was ordered, which was normal. July 11, 2000, AV, quote, came in today with a lovely fine balance and a glint in her eye, and she is maintaining a happy, incredible mood balance ever since the unfortunate incident that provoked her seizure three weeks ago. End quote. And AV, quote, has not presented with as easy and healthy a presentation in many, many months. End quote. July 19th, 2000, AV, quote, is entirely stable at present. End quote. End quote. She has an excellent perspective on her illness and some things she can do to keep herself well. September 6, 2000. She has remained remarkably stable this summer with no evidence of recurrent depression or mania, and AV is doing remarkably well, even compared to, the, to last year at this time when she was noticeably depressed. Uh, February 14, 2001, AV discussed tapering off her lithium with her psychiatrist who observed at the end of the case note that, quote, her insight and self-awareness are quite remarkable, end quote. May 30th, 2001, AV, quote, has gone off her lithium, and there are more mood instabilities as a result of that, but no evidence of clinical hypomania or depression. And we spoke carefully with her mother, father, and AV. It is clear that no one has seen, seen symptoms of clinical depression, and she has had a fairly successful school year other than one term out of four and has not had a breakthrough of clinical levels of depression or mania. AV's father observed that his daughter appeared to be completely recovered from her mental health concerns after the overdose incident. AV reports that she was free from all mental illness symptoms, bipolar or other, for the subsequent 13 years until she gave birth and experienced postpartum depression. The birth of her second child in 2017 was also associated with a turbulent emotional period. AV reports that after the LSD overdose incident, she experienced life with a, quote, normal, unquote, brain, whereas her brain felt chemically unbalanced before the incident. AV's cannabis use was unchanged by the overdose event, and she continues to use cannabis regularly. Currently, AV has stable employment, stable positive friendships, and good work relationships. Case 1, Conclusion. This case report uh, documents a significant improvement in mood symptoms, including reductions in mania with psychotic features following an accidental LSD overdose, changes that have been sustained for almost 20 years. 
How's that for a positive LSD story? Here's another one from the same spot, much shorter. Um, actually, we don't really even, well, uh, it's a 26-year-old woman who attended the same party, same summer solstice party as the girl above, uh, ingested half a glass of water, uh, so 500 mics. Um, she did not vomit, lose consciousness, or have a seizure. When the morning arrived, she was able to engage with others and debrief events. She had done some stuff before. She didn't know she was pregnant at the time, but retrospective calculations indicate she was two weeks into her pregnancy. She subsequently gave birth to a son who is now 18 years old. He has been easy to parent, is intelligent, does well academically, mostly A's in high school, is well-adjusted socially, many healthy friends, and is fit. Runs and goes to the gym. Conclusion. This case documents how an accidental overdose of LSD early in the first trimester of pregnancy did not negatively affect the course of NM's pregnancy or have any obvious uh, teratogenic or other negative developmental effects on her son. We will read one more uh, after... Wait, did we play... This is Kleng Massacre with There's Something Over the... Something that starts with K. I don't... I'm not good at this. There's something over the... K.
no accident. It's super wild. Was something over the knob by Clang Massacre on Ozarks After Dark Radio? <coughs> Not that part, just the first thing. And one more positive LSD story Northrop to build homes on moon orbit under $935 million NASA contract. July 9th, Reuters, Northrop Grumman Corp. Won a NASA contract worth $935 million to develop living quarters for the U.S. Space Agency's planned outpost in lunar orbit, the weapons maker said on Friday. Not exactly news, but I've had it up for a while. It keeps popping up in my bookmarks because I look through them. And 
Isn't that weird? Wonder what they're really doing up there. Hmm. hmm. So, uh, what was the other thing that uh, where where did I put it? Did I put it? Where did I put it? Okay, that's ear. I'm gonna kill the fuck out of this fly. Uh, so, case report number three. Massive LSD overdose associated with reduction of physical pain and morphine use. This case report was prepared from, from material gained from interviews with a 49-year-old woman, CB, and her roommate who witnessed the event. Background. CB contracted Lyme disease in her early 20s and experienced subsequent damage to her feet and ankles, causing significant pain. Eventually, she was prescribed morphine for analgesia, which she was on continuously for about a decade. Her average use of morphine before the LSD overdose event was 4 to 6 10 milligram pills a day, with a maximum of 8 pills depending on her foot pain levels, therefore uh, 40 to 80 milligrams a day. In September 2015, CB, age 46, took 55 milligrams intranasally of what she believed was cocaine, uh, but was actually pure LSD in powder form. This was the equivalent of 550 times the normal recreational dosage of 100 micrograms. She realized she had a problem within 15 minutes. Yeah, I bet well within 15 minutes. And called her roommate for help. He noticed that the bottle of LSD had been moved and weighed the remaining powder to determine approximately how much she ingested. She started vomiting within an hour and vomited frequently for the next 12 hours. Her recollection was that she sat up for this experience and mostly blacked out for the first 12 hours, after which she was able to communicate. She felt pleasantly high for the next 12 hours with infrequent vomiting. The collateral report from the roommate revealed that she sat mostly still in a chair with her eyes either open, closed, or rolled back, frothing at the mouth, occasionally vocalizing random words and vomiting frequently. Ten hours later, she was able to converse, went to the bathroom, and seemed coherent. Her roommate fed her and stayed with her for another 12 hours, after which she appeared to be normal. CB reported that her foot pain was gone the next day, therefore she discontinued her morphine did not use it for five days, and did not experience any withdrawal symptoms. Subsequently, her pain returned, so she restarted her morphine, but at a lower dose, one to two pills a day. She started microdosing LSD, 25 micrograms, approximately every three days. She continued microdosing LSD with daily morphine until January 2018, when she stopped the morphine and all other pain medications, as she believed that her pain was significantly reduced enough that the pain medications were unnecessary. After discontinuing the morphine, CB reported no typical withdrawal symptoms. However, she did experience an increase in anxiety, depression, and social withdrawal, as well as a sense of being overly sensitive to the experiences of others. Um, case three, conclusion. In a 46-year-old woman, intranasal, intranasal ingestion of 550 times the normal recreational dosage of LSD was not fatal and had subsequent positive effects on pain levels and subsequent morphine withdrawal. Although the effect was not sustained, she was able to reduce her morphine dose significantly with microdosing LSD and was able to come off of morphine eventually without typical withdrawal symptoms. 
And then the discussion is as follows. These case studies detail the medical consequences of three accidental LSD overdoses. This information is novel, as no clinical trial research could be done with the dosages this high, and there are no publications exploring the positive outcomes of very large dosages of LSD. The limitations of this analysis are as follows. The data are anecdotal, no blood or urine samples were available, and the LSD dosages were approximated. Although this experience was distressing for all participants, there appear to be unpredictable positive sequelae that ranged from improvements in mental illness symptoms to a reduction in physical pain and morphine withdrawal symptoms. Also, an LSD overdose while in early pregnancy did not appear to cause harm to the fetus. This report builds on the historical safety data, which observes LSD to have a low toxicity potential um, and adds to the rapidly expanding literature exploring the potential therapeutic applications of psychedelic medicines. And there you have it. I thought that was pretty interesting. And you should, too. Thank you for listening to episode 11 of the After Dark Dispatch here on Ozarks After Dark Radio at ozarksafterdark.com slash ADD. And if you want to listen to some fun music, you can always come to just ozarksafterdark.com and there are some streams that you can check out. Or you can check out some people talking about some cool shit. I added some other stuff to the Ponderosa and some oh shit. This tune right here is by Cyberpunk that's with a P. S-Y in the cyber. And it is called Grandfather. Welcome to October. The one creator. Buckle up. It's the future. <laughs> Some people call him Buddha. Some people call him Allah. We call him Grandfather.
Boom. Oh, shit. Boom. Boom.